Welcome to the Unritalin Solution Greatest Minds on ADHD interview series. I'm your host, Dr. Yannick Pauli, and today I have with me a very special individual, very special because he's been dedicating his life and has been doing a lot to serve uh, children and families uh, of children that suffer from ADHD, dyslexia, autism, and other neurobehavioral disorders. And that man is Dr. Robert Melillo. So, Dr. Melillo, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about being here with you. Excellent. Well, you know, Dr. Melillo is a very special man, and you, you'll realize that as I'll be sharing with you some of the accomplishments that, that he has been doing. Uh, you know, Dr. Melillo is really a man of, of many hats. He's been an author. He has published uh, three books, one of which called Neurobehavioral Disorders of Childhood. is a book for healthcare professionals. He has published in 2010 a book for the lay public called Disconnected Kids, the groundbreaking brain balance program for children with autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and other neurological disorders. And in April of 2011, his new book will be coming out, which he'll be, uh, he'll be talking about in a, in a few minutes here. His new book is called Reconnected Kids, Help Your Child Achieve Physical, Mental, and Emotional Balance. And beyond being an author, he's also a founder of Brain Balance Centers, which has, I think, about 34 centers now in the United States. He's also the executive director of the F.R. Carrick Institute, as well as a Children Autism Hope Project. And he's a man, he's, you know, before everything, he's a clinician. He's helping children out there, but he's also a scientist. He, he is the co-editor of the Journal of Functional Neurology, Rehabilitation, and Ergonomics. He's uh, the president of the International Association of Functional Neurology and Rehabilitation, and is also completing a PhD in cognitive neuropsychology. So quite a, a busy and productive man. <laughs> Anything Hi. I missed, Dr. Melillo? Yes. Nope, that was pretty much, that was a good introduction, actually. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, good. So, you know, th this was just to, you know, not brag about you, but really to get people to understand the breadth of your implication in the field of ADHD. Um, so why don't we start with you sharing a little bit of your background and the training that you've had, and really what got you interested into that field of ADHD, autism, and other neurobehavioral disorders? Sure. Well, one of the things that always attracted me to chiropractic was the uh, the fact that it was founded in neurology. I was always interested in neurology, even from when I was very young. And um, the fact that uh, chiropractic combined um, more of a rehabilitative approach to neurological-type problems um, was what really attracted me to the profession and attracted me also to neurology and rehab as two of the subspecialties. And so um, what really impacted me more than anything else, though, was, was when I was a, a student, I saw Dr. Ted Carrick speak, and um, he was really the founder of, of chiropractic neurology. And, and I saw him speak, and he just blew me away with his knowledge and his skill. And I knew that uh, this was a man that I wanted to study and emulate. And so as soon as I graduated, I went and spent time with him and as soon as he started teaching courses in chiropractic neurology, I was one of the first people to register, and I was uh, in the first graduating class back in 1990, and um, it, he was also one of the leaders in, in looking at uh, rehabilitation. Um, soon after that, I started actually teaching for uh, Dr. Carrick and uh, his institute, and 
In teaching chiropractic neurology, uh, around the early 90s or mid-90s, we started to develop the concept of hemispheric balance. We started to look at the literature and see that there was more involved with what we were doing at chiropractors than just affecting the body and the spine, that we were actually impacting the brain. And we started to look at this idea of hemispheric imbalances in the brain and how we could change that. Um, and so we were doing that at a high level, and I was doing it at a very high level in my practice, combining very high-level rehabilitation, and we were combining different subspecialties like medicine and physical therapy and chiropractic and nutrition. Uh, but around 1994, 1995, somebody asked me to do some research into the growing problem of ADHD, which I didn't know a lot about at the time. Uh, but I did have three small children, and when I saw that it was increasing so rapidly and dramatically, um, when I saw that between 1990 and 1995 in the United States, the use of Ritalin had increased 250%, um, it was very alarming to me, not only as a professional, but especially as a parent. And then uh, I did start to notice that my older son was showing signs of ADHD and and from there, uh, that's really kind of what started my interest in looking at children and doing research into, you know, what was actually happening in the brain of these children with ADHD. Wow. So, you, you know, one thing that you mentioned that is very interesting to me is this concept of, of a growing epidemics. Could, could, you, could you go into some of the statistics as related to ADHD and autism especially? And, sure. you know, the, why? Why is it growing so fast? Why are there so many more children being diagnosed with those kinds of problems? Sure. And it is very important that you raise this issue because one of the main things that I've been trying to do is go around and raise awareness um, that we are facing an epidemic of these disorders. Um, the statistics are pretty staggering. When you look at autism, for instance, <clears throat> less than 20 years ago, it was diagnosed approximately one out of every 10,000 children in the United States. And now recently it's been shown that it's less than one in 100. Um, ADHD, the Center for Disease Control in the United States in November came out with a statement saying that 10% of children or one out of every 10 children in the United States is diagnosed with ADHD. And again, you know, I do a lot of lecturing around the world, and obviously you're you're over in Europe, and um, everywhere we go, we find that these problems are pretty similar. It's not just a United States problem; it is something that's happening all over. It's not just a Western problem. Uh, my books uh, have been released in China and Korea, and I know that uh, in in the Asian countries, it's as big a problem as it is in the Western countries. Um, when we look at overall disabilities, including things like dyslexia, learning disabilities, we're looking at about 25% of children now qualify for a formal diagnosis or a diagnosis of special education in the United States. And um, that is growing. I mean, that, is not, that doesn't seem like there's any signs of it slowing down in any way. Um, when you start to realize that it's a real problem, and, and some people still question whether these are real numbers or real statistics, but I can assure you that most of the current research that's come out, and there's numerous uh, researchers that have confirmed this, that it is not just that we're recognizing these disorders more or that we're more familiar with them or because we changed the diagnostic criteria in the 90s, 
Um, all of those factors combined have only been shown to uh, explain maybe 25% of the increase over the past two decades. So that 75% of the cases that we see being diagnosed now are cases that never existed before. They would have never been this way 10, 15, 20 years ago. So when you look at such a rapid increase over such a short period of time, the next question is why? Why is it happening? Um, and most parents are told and most uh, doctors believe that these problems are purely genetic. And so when we look at that, we, we, we can say, well, that doesn't completely make sense because we know there is no such thing as a genetic epidemic, um, that you can't explain genes as a driving force behind something that's increasing so rapidly and dramatically. Besides the fact that most of individuals with autism will never actually have children. So if, in fact, it was purely a genetic problem like sickle cell anemia or Huntington's disease, then, in fact, the, the disease would be decreasing, not increasing, because the majority of people that have it don't pass on their genes. Um, but what is confusing is that when we look at autism, we realize that it has one of the highest inheritability quotients of any disorder, meaning it seems to run in families clearly. So if that's the case, then how do we explain that? Um, and there's this new concept of what we look at called epigenetics, which means epigenetics states that um, we're not looking at altered DNA or bad genes or mutated genes. We're looking at um, actually environmental factors are in, impacting or are interacting with genes and are affecting the expression of genes during development. And these genes seem to be the genes that are mostly responsible for building functional connections in the brain so that as the child is developing and maturing or even prenatally as their brain is maturing um, different environmental factors that we're not completely sure of at this point in time what those may be uh, but probably lifestyle factors the same factors that are driving the epidemic of obesity or diabetes or heart disease, that these factors are interacting with genes and are not allowing them to come online and turn on when they're supposed to. So what we simply see is that the brain of these children seem to be less connected, especially long-range connections between the two hemispheres, and they seem to be areas of the brain are desynchronized. They cannot coordinate multiple areas of the brain to work together at the same time. So basically what you're saying is that, you know, the source of those problems is a electrical imbalance because a lot of parents are actually told that, as you said, it's a genetic problem and there's imbalance in the chemistry that then need, you know, specific drugs to get back into balance. So what you're saying is that it's actually more of an electrical communication problem, right? Yes, and, and that's really very clear as far as with the top researchers right now. The concept of functional disconnection, which is really a physical, electrical imbalance in the brain, is really the leading theory right now. The older theory of looking at chemical imbalances in the brain um, really doesn't explain what we see happening in autism or these other disorders. It's really kind of too simplistic of a model, and most researchers are looking at a much more functional, complex model that really involves um, as we said, genes being turned on to build connections 
to bring different areas of the brain to come together at the same time. Um, this is really what makes the human brain unique. What makes the human brain unique is the fact that we can coordinate multiple areas of our brain and huge networks of cells to come online at the exact same moment of time. Um, and the fact that we have a very asymmetric brain, which means that the two sides of our brain are very different, um, more than any other species or any other animal. And so when we can combine all these different centers on both sides of the brain that do unique things, and we combine them together in unique ways, it gives humans a certain level of an intellect that no other animal has. Um, that is way beyond any other species that can't be explained purely by genetics because we share 85% of the same genes as mice. We share 99% of the same genes as chimpanzees, but yet we're so much more intelligent. And we realize that it's this coordination of our brain that makes us unique, but it also means that any little problems that interfere with the ability to coordinate areas of the brain can have a big impact on the human brain and especially during development. That's that's really interesting. Could you could you expand on this concept of hemisphericity and how actually it's altering this ability of the brain to communicate properly? Well, um the idea like we said that we can coordinate multiple areas of the brain together is what makes the human brain unique and the fact that the two sides of our brain do, do completely different things um, and combining them together again gives us unique abilities but what seems to be happening in children with autism and ADHD and dyslexia is during development nothing is injured nothing is damaged because that's one of the misconceptions that people often think of along with the fact that they think there must be a gene mutation they think that there must be some sort of damage in these children's brains, but that's why these problems are so mysterious, because there isn't any injury in their brains. But what seems to be happening is that um, w one side of the brain is not maturing at the same rate as the other side of the brain, so that networks within the brain can't coordinate with one another. Um, we don't develop both sides of our brain at the same time. The right side of the brain develops in the womb and for the first two to three years of life. And then for the next three years, it's approximately the left side of the brain. Then it switches back and forth. So if something impacts the development of the brain prenatally or the first couple of years of life, it's more likely to interfere with the development of the right hemisphere. If both sides of the brain don't mature at the same rate, what we end up with is one side of the brain has a very fast processing speed. The uh, brain, as it matures, the brain cells get larger, um, they get thicker, and they get faster impulses. Um, when a child is born, they have very little of their brain actually there. About 25% of the weight of the brain is actually there. Uh, the brain weighs about 350 grams at birth, but yet... Um, in the adult size, it will be about 1,350 grams. And by three years of age, it's going to be 90% of that size. So in the first three years is when the majority of the brain growth occurs. Um, anything that interferes with the genes turning on and developing the brain um, will uh, affect the development of the, the size of the brain cells. It's not creating more brain cells. The majority of the growth of the brain is increasing the size of each brain cell, making sure that we have more insulation around the brain cells so we can get faster impulses, 
and mostly the growth is building new connections between areas of the brain. We first build connections locally in our close neighbors that we reach out to other cells that are nearby in the same hemisphere and make connections to those cells and then those cells connect back. Um, as the brain grows and as it gets faster and it starts to be able to reach out to more and more areas of the brain, we're able to bring more areas together uh, so that they can connect and that they can come online at the same time. Eventually, we get longer-range connections that form between the two sides of the brain that allow us to coordinate both sides of the brain to work together and get multiple areas from both sides of the brain to be able to come online at the same time. If one side of the brain is maturing at a slower rate because environmental factors are interfering in some way with that, what we end up getting is one side of the brain has a very fast processing speed and the other side of the brain has a relatively slow processing speed. And it's like an old and a new computer with different processing chips. They both work independently, but they can't share information together. And this is exactly what we see in children with, with autism. We see that their local short-range connections are stronger than normal, but their long-range connections between the two sides of the brain are actually underconnected, and the areas of the brain on both sides are desynchronized. Okay. You, you know, you're talking about this difference in, in brain activation. One of the things that rebaffles really a lot of parents and educators and teachers is the fact that those children have, you know, parts of them that are within normal or even above normal where they're great at some things and some other part of themselves where they're really deficient. And it's difficult for parents or teachers to really understand why they have strong sides and weak sides. Would this hemisphericity or what you're talking about explain that? Exactly. That's, that's one of the things that stands out about these children is what's called the unevenness of skills, that these children are not delayed in everything. When you look at somebody with a true, uh, like, genetic form of mental retardation, something like a fragile X syndrome or a Down syndrome, what you don't see in those children is an unevenness of skills. Everything is pretty much globally uh, delayed for their age. But in children with ADHD and autism and dyslexia, um, what you see is that they have certain skills that are very delayed for their age, but then they have other skills that may be average for their age or in some cases even significantly advanced for their age in the same child. Some children you can see literally genius level skills in certain areas along with mentally retarded level skills in other areas. And there's never been a model, scientific model that really explained that before. But when you look at the concept of functional disconnection and hemisphericity, it explains it perfectly. And it's exactly what we see in the neurology. We see that certain areas of the brain, as we said, are locally um, more connected than normal. So they actually have more connectivity and coherence or faster electrical activity in certain areas of the brain than normal people do. And then in other areas of the brain, they have other areas that are less coherent or that are less connected than what we see in the typical developing child. So that you see these functions that they have mirror that. So they have certain areas that have more electrical power and coherence. 
They have areas that are bigger or areas that are physically smaller or less mature than we would expect to see. And along with that, we see that these functions that are associated with those areas are also unbalanced in a way where certain things they do very well and certain things they do very poorly. Okay. As, you know, you mentioned that environmental factors played a very important role in impeding some of those genes to get turned down. In your experience as a clinician, what are some of the most common factors that you found that are interfering with proper brain development? Well, I think that the single most important thing that I think has occurred over the past two decades is the fact that children, are, because of the development of technology, are having less and less early motor activity. Um, the foundation of the brain is primarily built with a child first being able to move. And as they move and interact with their environment, they stimulate their sensory organs to engage with the environment around them. And that is where the majority of the initial stimulus of the brain comes from that turns on these genes that helps the brain cells to grow larger and faster and connect to other areas. Um, I think with the development of technology and with the changes that we've seen in our society, that children are less and less active at earlier ages, um, uh, and they're not interacting with their environment as much. 75% of children in the United States start their lives in daycare because both parents are working, and we know that children in daycare don't have as much physical activity with their environment or with their parents or other people as children who are raised by their parents uh, primarily. Um, we know that more children are not allowed to kind of crawl around early and that many of them will start off with certain types of problems that interfere with their movement, like they don't have release of something known as infantile or primitive reflexes. These are all factors that I think are very significant. I mean, when you look at, in the United States, 25% of four-year-olds are obese. There's only one way that a four-year-old child becomes obese, and it's, it's not because they're eating too much. It's because they're not moving enough. Um, so I think the combination of technology and computers and video games and television, that is one major factor, along with the fact that parents are afraid to let their children outside as they did in years gone by, and the fact that both parents are working because there are more economic stresses, um, combined with the fact that we have mothers and fathers that are more stressed out and are also more unhealthy, uh, more obesity, so that all of these factors affect hormones and affects chemicals in the body of both parents that can alter the gene expression. Because that's one of the things about epigenetics is that one of the things we know about epigenetics is that um, without changing the actual DNA, with just turning off a segment of the DNA that can happen from a parent altering their diet or their vitamin intake or being exposed to toxins or stress hormones, that turned-off gene in the parent can be passed on not only to their own children, but could also be passed up to at least 11 generations that we know of. So this is why it can run in families and it can be inherited, but it doesn't have to do with actually changing or altering the DNA it just has to do with changing the expression of the DNA. So I think that changes in physical activity and behavior in both parents and children, as well as diet, 
as well as some exposure to toxins or a combination of those things are what is driving the changes and why we see such an epidemic rise of these behaviors and disorders. Fascinating. Fascinating. For for the parents who will be listening to, to this um, <clears throat> recording, what would you suggest as far as getting their children moving? Could you give us maybe two or three suggestions of, uh, as far as movement is concerned, maybe as far as nutrition? You know, which kind of sports would be better for these children? What type of foods they should eat? Could you give us two or three tips that parents could start, you know, implementing to help their children? Sure. I think the simplest thing is, You know, in, in old days or days when I was growing up, which wasn't that long ago, two or three decades ago, four decades ago, five decades ago, um, there was an old model that basically, you know, children came home from school and they, uh, and they would, um, you know, go, parents would have them do their homework and then go outside until it was dark. Um, my parents would never let me just sit around the house, especially on a summer day when it was beautiful out. Um, and I think that that is one of the most basic rules that parents can get back to, that when your child comes home from school, you have them do your home, their homework and then just force them to go outside, just shove them outside. I remember reading a story by Rich, Richard Branson uh, where he talked about that, about how his parents would just, you know, they would just make him go outside. And uh, even if it was cold out, you had to go outside and, and, and use your imagination and interact with nature and with the environment. Um, especially on a beautiful summer day. I also would, you know, one of the things you can do is, is remove the temptation. Um, children, I, I, in my house, I don't even have video games. I don't allow video games in my house. Um, or if I do, if my child is exposed to video games, I, I keep that very, very restrictive. Um, and I use that as a way of rewarding, if anything. Also, um, limiting the amount of TV or screen time in general to no more than an hour and a half to two hours a day maximal. Um, because when a child is in front of a TV screen or a computer screen, they're not moving their body. If you simply take that away from them, what will happen is they will find physical things to do. So it doesn't even have to be a formal sport or anything like that. But, of course, uh, anything where, ha where they have to run, or things where they have to use their feet, like soccer or football in Europe, is a great sport because it uses an area of the brain called the cerebellum, which is one of the areas that we see that is most underdeveloped in children with ADHD and autism. Um, nutritionally, um, staying away from a high-carbohydrate diet, making sure that children get proteins um, and that they get the proper amino acids to build areas of their brain and their body and, their, and the chemicals in their brain, um, making sure that they have uh, organic foods as much as possible, trying to stay away from processed foods, try to get meat and fish that are not raised on corn but rather on grass or green because that gives you natural essential fatty acids that are very important, the omega-3s to build the brain. Um, And, you know, just trying to make sure that the child eats a, a healthy diet. Uh, but what a lot of parents don't realize is that um, many children will have dietary issues that are really secondary to their brain. If they're not moving their body and they're not building their brain up and they don't have a balanced brain, you end up with a an imbalance in the immune system, 
where you can have an overreaction of the immune system and you also get an underdeveloped digestive system. So you can't break down foods and you can't get the nutrients and get the proteins that are needed to build the body and the brain. And you may end up with what we call a leaky gut, which may lead to food sensitivities or food allergies. And just eliminating those foods or giving them vitamins isn't the whole answer. Um, the whole answer is to make sure that their brain is working properly, um, and then they won't need any special diets or special vitamins, just a good natural diet. Great. Thank you so much. What would you recommend for, you know, for a family that, that lives in a city as far as getting their child moving? Um, you know, well, most cities there are parks that are available, Um trying to get them every day to a park, I think, <laughs> same type of thing. Have them come home, um, have home, do their homework, and then get them out to a park. Of course, uh, in cities, it may, they may need close, closer supervision, especially with small children. Um, but, you know, trying to get them out, and the advantage of living in a city is that you can walk everywhere. So, you know, making sure that um, if you walk around the city or getting out every day and, just walking around would be great. I mean, the, the advantage of being in a city and you're walking around is there's so much stimulus around you. There's so many sights and sounds and smells available that just going out and walking around and interacting with the environment is great. And this is a big problem in cities because, um, especially if both parents are working and the child comes home, um, you know, and there's no supervision, the parents are really afraid to just let their child go out. So making sure that they have some sort of supervision or somebody that can take them and make sure that they get out every day and interact because children in cities are especially at risk of just staying in an apartment. Um, and, you know, the only way to keep them entertained is to have them watch TV or watch video games or play video games. And so this is a real threat that they have to be careful of. Okay. Thank you. Let's imagine I'm a parent and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, whether my child may be suffering from ADHD or other type of neurobehavioral disorders, or maybe my child has recently been diagnosed and, you know, the medical doctor or neurologist or a, <clears throat> a pediatrician recommended uh, some drugs, and, you know, I don't really want to go that route. Could you explain how, how you would help as a clinician and maybe explain to, to, the, to parents and to us what your brain balance centers actually do and how they evaluate children and what they do with them to help them out? Sure. Um, well, one of the things I would recommend to people is if you have a question about your child, which more and more parents do, that the first thing you need to do is educate yourself or to, be, to seek out the advice of somebody who really knows what they're doing and, and knows what they're talking about. And unfortunately, most of the people that are working with these children every day really don't know what the current research is. They're, most of them are operating under a model that's over 50 years old. Um, and even most pediatricians aren't really up on the latest research. So I think that they should seek out people who are trained in functional neurology. But I think my book, Disconnected Kids, is a very good resource for parents to first explain to them what's actually happening in their brain and then to give them to give them a way of actually assessing their own child I have a checklist in the book I have multiple checklists in the book that the parent can fill out that will give them a good idea if their child has a particular problem 
Um, we're not that interested in just labeling them with ADHD or autism. We're more interested in trying to see, you know, is there an imbalance in their brain and in their developing nervous system? And so the book really, I think, is a good way of looking at that in multiple areas, in the motor development, in sensory processing and uh, development, uh, as well as their academic and cognitive skills. And it also gives them a lot of advice as to how to look to see if their child may have food sensitivities or specific vitamin and mineral deficiencies that they may need to um, to do something with. Um, once they assess their child, or if they go to somebody who specializes in functional neurology, or if they go to one of the brain balance centers, and, and the brain balance centers, we do a, a very extensive evaluation. We literally will measure on each child over 1,100 different functions in all of those areas that I just mentioned. Uh, so, you know, that's a very extensive, that's kind of like the ultimate assessment that a parent can get. But a typical functional neurologist is also very well trained, and the book itself is also a tremendous resource for parents to evaluate their own child and really understand what's going on. And then from there, um, they can either take the book and use that to formulate a program that they can do at home. And I lead them through every step of how to do that at home. And I get letters and emails every day from people around the world that are using the book successfully to remediate every problem that's out there. So I know that the book itself is a tremendous resource. But if and, and by the like, way, if, if you're listening to this recording, driving your car, don't crash it straight right down the book. We'll give you the resource and the links uh, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and um, But certainly... Again, an evaluation by a functional neurologist and then put together a treatment plan that can work with a child um, or they can seek out this one of our centers where we have actually almost 50 of them now that are either open or in the process of opening in about 21 different states. And we hope that next year we're probably going to be expanding um, throughout different parts of the world. We already have a waiting list of of about 50, uh, place, 50 people around the world in Australia, in Europe, in Asia um, that want to open centers and, and bring it to their community. So there are a lot of resources for parents that they can go to um, to get information and to also get help with either doing a program at home or they can actually go and have somebody put together a program for them. In our centers, what happens is the parent will bring the child in for an initial evaluation. Then we will explain to them for about two hours what those results are and what the program is all about that we recommend. And each child is different. Um, and then if the, if the parent decides to enroll their child in our centers, we will see that child three times a week for an hour with a combined program that combines sensory and motor-based training along with cognitive and academic training we will also meet with the parent to devise a home program that includes behavioral modification. Um, and we also will recommend a specific blood test. And then we will recommend specific diet and nutritional interventions at home as well. So it's a very comprehensive program. Uh, but the core of that is also in the book, Disconnected Kids, as well. Great. Could you could you talk a little bit about some of the results that you get? Uh, because you've published a study last year uh, about the effect of hemisphere-specific 
remediation. Could you just share with, with our listeners some of the results uh, that you've got? And, uh, you know, it, it might be shocking for some people to hear what's possible, actually, but could, could you explain sure. a little bit what you found? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is shocking for people to hear because, again, when they hear from people that these are purely genetic problems and they're often told um, that there's not much they can hope for, that the, the child will never be able to get rid of these problems, that they basically are doomed for the rest of their life and the best you can only hope to do is to compensate for these problems. Um, but as you said, um, there was one um, article that was published in, in the International Journal of Adolescent Medicine and Health which is a fully peer-reviewed uh, indexed medical journal um, that examined our program and looked at 60 children from two of our centers that were randomly selected who had been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, they went through our program and after 12 weeks they were reassessed. 82% of those children no longer met the criteria for ADHD after 12 weeks. Um, furthermore, we had uh, 60% of those children had at least a two-grade level increase in, by standardized academic testing in multiple academic areas, um, and 35% had a four-grade level or more increase in multiple academic areas after 12 weeks. So um, we see that you know these are huge changes um, that uh, really make a big difference, and. We are in, uh, ongoing doing a number of other control studies, and we have a, a number of other uh, outcome studies that will be probably released by the end of this year looking at autism and dyslexia and Asperger's syndrome as well. And, um, you know, again, they show a similar type of success rate. Uh, most of the children that we work with with autism or high-functioning autism um, will require more than 12 weeks. They usually require more like six months or more, but um, we get also um, extremely good results, and we've had many, many children that have completely been um, recovered from autism or from uh, other, uh, from high-functioning autism and from uh, from the other disorders as well. So, you know, we have shown that you can remediate these problems completely, that you can eliminate these problems, whether it's tick disorders like Tourette's, whether it's OCD, whether it's ADHD dyslexia, learning disabilities, conduct disorders. We've worked with all of these disorders and had success, and, uh, and we'll be publishing a lot of those results as time goes on. This is quite impressive. In fact, it's so impressive that, you know, some, some parents may have gone through so many different therapies uh, with no or limited results that they've almost lost hope, and when you share uh, the possibilities, they have a hard time believing it. What what would you tell them for, for these people that have tried a lot of things with, you know, not getting the results that they were looking for? Well, I think what, what happens a lot is that uh, when people read my book, Disconnected Kids, even professionals when they read that book, um, they realize that it's a completely new model, that nobody has ever put it together like this before for these types of problems. And the other thing is that they read it and they say, wow, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, this really answers all of the questions. And I think what most people have been finding is that when they go to their doctors most commonly or to other people that are working with their children, and even though these people are very well-trained and well-meaning and trying very hard, they really don't understand what's actually happening in the brain. And this is the bottom line. With us, it all started with me with, 
understanding and trying to understand what is actually happening in the brain. And then the program that we developed was really built from the bottom up, really looking at brain research, which no other program really has done that. Most other programs out there that are working with children really come from the idea that how do we just manage this particular symptom? You know, we see one symptom. Uh, children ha a child has a problem with visual processing or with eye movements, or they have a problem with auditory processing, or they have a problem with behavior or diet or nutrition or academics. And they only look at that one piece of the puzzle and try to remediate that one piece. And they do things to try to manage that particular symptom without really looking at the big picture and really understanding what is actually happening in the brain. Um, our program has started with looking at the brain and then look at all of the different pieces as part of that. So what we do is put, a, get to a, put together a program that is extremely comprehensive where we do all of those things. We'll do visual stimulation, auditory stimulation, tactile, smell. We work with their diet. We work with their academics. We work with their behavior. We work on everything that is going on with that child, and we do it individually to the child, but also directed towards what's particularly happening in the brain, meaning we're trying to reestablish normal communication by correcting the underlying imbalance, which is the actual problem. So I think when parents understand how comprehensive this approach is and how new and cutting edge it is, but yet that it's based on the latest brain research and that it was built from the very beginning on brain research, I think they understand you know, why it is so powerful and why we can get changes that nobody else can get. I think it's a it's a great segue into one more things I wanted to talk about with you and and this is this idea of your commitment to research. Could you could you share with our listeners a little bit more about your involvement in the FR Carrick Research Institute and the Children Autism Hope Project? Yeah, well, like you said from the beginning, uh it really starts with understanding what's happening in the brain and understanding the research and also the best way to really um have parents believe in what we do is to really produce the research that proves that, that it's effective. Uh, and I understand that because there's a part of me, as you said, that is a researcher, and I head up a research lab, and we're doing a lot in that area. I mean, we've come out with a number of um, uh, new uh, you know, research papers over the past couple of years, and we continue to do that. We also are developing collaborative efforts with other labs and universities around the world. So that we have a number of great projects going on right now. Um, we have our primary lab is in New York, the F.R. Carrick Research Institute, and a division of that is known as the Children's Autism Hope Project, which that division is really focused on just researching and understanding autism. We look at autism as the biggest mystery in neuroscience, and if we can figure out that, then it will open the door to research into many other areas like um, Parkinson's disease and and Tourette's and, and, and ADHD and all these other disorders. Um, but in the, the lab in New York, we primarily do psychologically based research, uh, but we've also just signed an agreement with uh, Hebrew University and with a lab called Herzog Hospital, which is a, a huge hospital that's affiliated with Hebrew University in, in Jerusalem. And um, this is a, a hospital that is, is number two in the world for research at this point, and they're very well known, especially in neuroimmunology, 
um, and in genetics. So we've taken over a lab there um, in that hospital where we're going to be doing primarily neuroimmunology and biochemical research to look at things like nutrition and to understand better the role that the brain plays in controlling the immune response and the digestive response and to possibly look at various types of supplements or even possibly medications that might affect the brain so that it helps affect the digestive system and the immune system in a better way. So we want to understand that role much better. We are also doing some ongoing research in Cuba with uh, with a, uh, a gentleman named Calixto Machado, who is an MD, PhD neurologist, and he's one of the leading people in the world in comas. But he's um, doing some ongoing studies looking at fMRI and looking at the brain of autistic children. And we also are, uh, believe that we're going to be doing a, uh, a, a collaborative research project with one of the top labs in the world out of Harvard this summer uh, on ADHD, looking at um, you know hemispheric-type treatments towards children with ADHD and looking at uh, fMRI studies of the brain uh, along with other neuropsychological measurements before and after when we when we do those types of treatments. So we have a lot of research ongoing um, in labs, which is one aspect of what we're doing, but we also hope that eventually we can make what we're doing in our center is available for every child, regardless of you know how much money their parents make or their ability to pay. And to do that, we want to get school districts to pay for the program. But to do that, we know that we need thousands of bits of data um, and thousands of, of cases that we've shown success with. So in our centers, we're collecting this data every day. It's the, the centers are designed to collect new data every day on every child that we work with. And this year alone in the United States, we'll probably work with about 10,000 children. Over the next few years, we'll work with over 100,000 children. And we believe that in the next four or five years, we'll collect enough data that we can go to school systems and show that what we do is not only effective, but also cost-effective. Um, and this is very important because in the United States, not only are we recognizing that these problems are increasing at epidemic levels, but at the same time, we're seeing that services to these children are being cut and special ed programs are being cut because of the economy. So parents are left more and more without any any resources. And so if we can get school systems to pay for this because it actually reduces their costs and provides a service to the parent, that's what we're looking to do. And we realize that research is really at the foundation of all of that. Great. And, uh, you know, I asked you, this was a bit more of a, you know, a 50,000 feet view of your work, but I think it was important for, for the listeners to, to hear that because they need to realize that it's grounded in, in science and that you're putting a lot of effort into showing that, you know, this new model is actually effective. Uh, let's transition back more on, you know, probably uh, some tips that are practical for parents who are listening uh, to this school. Could you talk a little bit about your, your new book, Reconnected Kids, Help Your Child Achieve Physical, Mental, and Emotional Balance, what it is all about, and how it can serve our listeners? Sure. Um, as we started working with more children um, through the book and through our centers, uh, what we found is that most parents came in, and one of their chief complaints about other programs, as you kind of raised before, was that they really didn't see a lot of dramatic changes in their child, that 
they went through the programs or they did the different types of, of interventions and um, they didn't really see a lot of difference in their child. Uh, when they start our programs or when they start the book, one of the things that we see is that they usually often notice dramatic changes in their child and especially in their children's behavior and in their functions. Um, so they know that something's happening that didn't happen before. But sometimes they also notice that some of the behaviors that come on seem negative. Their child, who may have been a perfectly easygoing child before, now suddenly starts to say no and start to become maybe oppositional or what looks like compulsive. Or they start to cry or they start to scream or they start to get emotions that they never had before. And to some parents, this can be alarming because they don't know, is this a good thing or this is a bad thing? Um, and so one of the things that we saw in our centers especially was that these were the majority of questions that we were getting from parents. You know, what's happening with my child and is this good? So the first part of the book is really about explaining to them from a neurological standpoint that as we start to work with a child, um, we, you may start to see changes in behavior that are normal and natural and are actually good. Um, what we see is that both sides of the brain control behaviors, and the left side controls what we call approach behaviors, and the right side is what we call avoidance behaviors. And emotions are there to motivate them towards either of those behaviors. We have uh, positive emotions that really um, motivate us to approach the world and go out there and seek out information and touch things and interact with things, which is the left brain, or we have negative emotions that sometimes will help to protect us, that help us to withdraw or stop from doing things that are unnecessary or that aren't going to help us or that are potentially dangerous. So we have negative emotions that, that motivate us to do those types of, of things. And with many children who that we work with, the majority have these right hemisphere delays. When we look at ADHD or autism or Asperger's, they have right hemisphere delays. So they may be very pleasant child children and positive children, but they've never developed the negative emotions and the negative behaviors of the right side of the brain. As we stimulate the right side of the brain, what we often see is the onset of some of these negative behaviors and negative emotions, which are normal and are natural and are necessary, but the parent has never seen them before. And they're also, also happening later in life than it would with a typical child because their brain is literally immature and delayed in that area. So the book explains to them what to expect and shows them compared to other milestones how they can, they can, they can look at these emotions as uh, what age they belong to. So a kid who's eight years old may actually be uh, having the onset of emotions that a three-year-old would have but that's normal, and then they may develop a four-year-old behavior and a five-year-old behavior, so the parent can see, even though there are negative behaviors, that it's a positive development and it's a normal progression. Um, but also, the second part of the book is, now that the parent understands neurologically and is prepared and can monitor what's happening, they still need to know how to deal with these behaviors. So the second part of the book um, is not only for parents who have children with developmental or neurological issues, but it's also for any parent because most parents now, 80% of parents are dissatisfied with their children's behavior. And so what we do is we teach them how to deal with negative behaviors based on brain research 
um, and based on our experience. And a lot of it starts with the parents. So what we also do is we, we focus on the parent and getting the parent into a positive mental state and getting the parent to reconnect with their goals uh, because a lot of parents are bitter and angry and frustrated and negative and overwhelmed and stressed out. Um, and so we need to get that parent positive because you can't just develop a behavioral plan for your child and force them to do things if the parent themselves are very negative or if they're not leading you know, a life that might be exemplary. So the second part is really very motivational. It's very directed towards the parent. And then it teaches the parent how to approach their child's behavior um, and as with them as an example and gets them to work with their child as the child's coach in building the child's own goals and dreams. So it uses the universal law of attraction similar to the book The Secret. And I use that in, in very practical terms to help the, the parent interact with all of their children and to reconnect with with their children and their family values and to build family rules and to really help um, optimize their child's behavior and help their child reach their own goals and dreams. Great. How can uh, our listeners uh, get the book? Well, the book is, is going to be released uh, April 5th, and they can get it either through bookstores, through Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, Borders, or they could go on Amazon, or they can go on almost any of the online uh, stores, and they can order it. Um, they can pre-order it now if they'd like to, uh, or they can, uh, they can pre-order it through their own bookstore. Um, but um, what we'd like to do is, is try to get a coordinated effort where when the book is first released, uh, we get as many people to uh, to purchase the book as possible. So either um, now pre-ordering it or as soon as the first week the book is released, which is, as we said, April 5th, if people can go and go in there and um, and either go to their bookstores and order it or, um, or order it online, uh, that would be great. And I really highly recommend to our listeners to, to get the book because, you know, Dr. Melillo is really masterful at taking – you know, updated breakthrough scientific concept and uh, transform it into very practical and effective uh, applications to help to help your child. So, Dr. Melillo, in the last uh, few minutes we have together, is there uh, any question I should have asked you or you would have wished I had asked you? Um, you know, one of the things I think that's important for, par for, for parents or for uh professionals to understand is what is functional neurology we've used that term a few times um, and what does that mean and I think that's an important thing for people to understand that I believe that functional neurology is going to be the next evolution of healthcare of the healthcare model um, traditional medicine has always been directed primarily at looking at um, emergency interventions life-saving interventions and really managing symptoms. So they look at different different systems and manage the symptoms. There was another healthcare model called functional medicine that developed several years ago that really said, well, we need to look and measure more functions because what people have now is not so much infectious diseases and um, life-threatening short-term type of diseases, but rather more chronic illnesses. And so functional medicine was more about looking at chronic illnesses and trying to measure functions of different systems rather than just to manage the symptoms. 
and that was definitely the, uh, an, uh, an advanced evolution of a healthcare model. But the problem with functional medicine is that it doesn't look at neurology at all. It doesn't understand that the brain actually controls all of those systems. Um, and most of the people in functional medicine really don't know anything about the brain. They look at um, the digestive system and the immune system, and they understand that, and, and they understand that those things can affect the brain, but that more often the brain is what's actually impacting their digestive system and their functions. And most of the disorders that we see, like heart disease and diabetes and and uh, irritable bowel syndrome and autoimmune disorders, and all of those disorders um, that we don't traditionally look as brain-related, um, along with things like depression and anxiety and schizophrenia and all the things that we do look as brain-related, that those are all interactive. And so understanding the brain as really the, the main thing that might be leading to a lot of these disorders is where the idea of functional neurology comes into play. And this is, I think, the next evolution, and we're seeing a lot of people from many different subspecialties, not just chiropractic or chiropractic neurology, but also physical therapy and even traditional medicine is starting to move into this. And we have a major conference that we're holding this year in Orlando in May from the 12th to the 15th. We have a new association called the International Association of Functional Neurology and Rehab, and as you said, we also have a new journal called the Journal of Functional Neurology, Rehabilitation, and Ergonomics. And in this conference, we have some of the leading researchers in the world that are coming to speak, and we uh, expect that we're going to have a large number of, uh, of health professionals uh, from all over the world that are going to come down there. And we believe that this will be the model of the future. So I think people should uh, be aware of that and understand that um, – that looking for somebody who's trained in functional neurology for multiple conditions is what they they may want to look for. Well, great. Thank you so much. And I think for, you know, for the parents who will be listening to this recording, probably the best thing they can do is is, you know, buy your book The Disconnected Kids, which is, you know, a great great way to start into this this new model. So, Dr. Melillo, uh, thank you so much. Please stay on the line while I'm saying goodbye to our listeners here. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and wisdom. Uh, this was uh, Dr. Yannick Poli for the Unwritten Solution, our interview series, Greatest Minds on ADHD, with Dr. Robert Melillo. Thank you so much, Dr. Melillo. Thank you.